Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Andrew Marble about his book, Boy on the Bridge, the story of John Shalikasvili's American success. Andrew, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, Well, I'm an unusual person to have written a biography of an American military officer. Uh, I do have a PhD in political science, but my focus has been on Asia, China politics, Taiwan politics. And I had been living abroad for almost eight years in Taiwan, working as an editor in this in this field. And I thought it was time to come back to the States. And I got a job at an Asia policy think tank. uh, And General Shali uh, was on the board of advisors. And um, that's how I came to know about him. And um, just as a kind of quick overview, uh, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, he's the highest ranking military officer and he's the primary military advisor to the president and the secretary of defense. Um, and I, know I, th- I thought it might be helpful just to briefly overview some of Shally's accomplishments so you kind of get a sense of the historical period he was in. Please proceed. He was um, appointed by uh, Bill Clinton during his first administration. Uh, he followed General Colin Powell. And I, know, I think when history looks back at his chairmanship um, and, and slightly before, they're going to, I think his biggest contribution was helping the U.S., Europe, and beyond to kind of navigate the chaos of the immediate post-Cold War period, right? Russia, the Soviet Union collapses, nobody knows what's going on. Um, so his first big accomplishment was Operation Provide Comfort. That was in 1991 after Gulf War I. Uh, if you recall, uh, the Kurds rose up against Saddam Hussein. Uh, thinking the U.S. was going to support them, the U.S. didn't. And then Saddam Hussein struck back. And out of fear out for chemical attacks, one, one, one to two million people, uh, Kurds, fled northern Iraq. Uh, half went to Iran and half went towards Turkey. Uh, anyway, a whole bunch of them, more than a half a million, got trapped in the Turkish mountains. 
and Shally led Operation Provide Comfort to kind of rescue them, to uh, stabilize them, and then move them back into Iraq. We can get, get into more detail later. Um, but he's so impressed, General Colin Powell, the, the current chairman then, that Powell made him his assistant. Uh, and in that position, one of his biggest contributions was securing loose nuclear weapons in the form, former Soviet Union. Uh, and not long after that, he was made satyr. Uh, the military head of NATO, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Uh, he did that for a year and then he became chairman. And just really quickly, the, the things that he did in these two positions were he helped end the carnage in Bosnia. Uh, he helped manage this huge drawdown, you know, the post-Cold War drawdown of U.S. forces, all while maintaining, you know, our, the U.S.'s fighting ability. Um, he was the driving force behind NATO's Partnership for Peace, uh, and the transformation of militaries in Central Europe. And some would argue, including me, uh, he helped rebalance civil-military relations because under Colin Powell, um, many felt that Powell was such a powerful figure uh, uh, that he helped kind of sway, his, his opinions often held sway. And it was good to, uh, to have someone like Shally who was more collaborative and worked, worked closer with the administration. Um, so those, those were the those are the big things when you think about Shally's contributions. Um, well, he's definitely a significant figure in terms of uh, post Cold War American military and foreign policy. What was it that 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 led you to decide to write a biography of him, and, and in particular the, the the particular approach that you decided to uh, adopt in terms of writing about him? Yeah, that's thank you. That's like the most important question because none of these his accomplishments, none of them were kind of what what caught my eye. Um, when I first started working at that think tank, I honestly didn't know what a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually was. Um, but uh, there was a, there was, I'd say there was four things that, that grabbed my attention. Um, first of all, he has this incredible, you know, underdog American success story, right? Uh, he's our first foreign-born chairman. He was born in Poland. Uh, he's our first draftee. Now, this would be the peacetime draft that was... Um, put in uh, when the Cold War first started. Um, and, oh, by the way, he was the second enlisted man, uh, man to become chairman. The other would be General Bessie. Um, and his third kind of underdog success element was he was a graduate of Officer Candidate School, which is, you know, compared to West Point or ROTC is probably the least glamorous. Um, so, yeah, this is the first thing is, boom, this underdog story. Um, well, he has this incredible World War II childhood as well, which was, was the next thing. Um, so he was born in Poland, but his parents weren't Polish. His parents um, both were kind of citizens of Tsarist Russia, and then, of course, it collapsed. And they both independently ended up in Warsaw, where they met and got married. And his uh, father had been, also been a military officer and ended up being a foreign contract officer in Poland, the Polish cavalry. Um, and he met his wife, and then they had three children. But because neither of them, neither of the parents had citizenship now, um, uh, Shally and his brother and sister, they also weren't um, given citizenship. Uh, they lived through the Warsaw Uprising. Their apartment was hit by a dive bomber, came crumbling down around them. They had to live in cellars and move through sewers uh, for weeks on end. And when it was finally over, they managed to flee to Pappenheim, Germany, uh, the second country he'd live in, uh, to live off the charity of relatives. And, um, but Germany also didn't give, give him citizenship. And, um, you know, he got lucky. And uh, some rich, 
relatives of a distant cousin <laughs> brought them over to Peoria. Um, so, okay, so uh, another thing, though, is, um, believe it or not, like General Shalley came from royalty. Uh, he was born Prince John Malchais David Shalley Kashvili and a long line of Georgian princes that go back to at least the year 1400. Um, many held the position of Chamberlain of the Royal Georgian Court. It's a key civil military position in Georgia. And the last to do so was his great-grandfather, his paternal great-grandfather, and namesake, Jean or Ivan Shalik Uh He had fought with such distinction in the Crimean War that uh, Tsar Alexander II reportedly awarded him a gold saber uh, with the inscription, The Brave, and he then became known as John, Jean Shalikashvili the Brave, and <laughs> he, he went on to retire as a major general. Uh, and if, if you think his father's lineage is impressive, his mother, even his mother's lineage blows that away. Um, one of her relatives was a Baltic German, Johann von Krusenstern. And he was the first admiral in the Imperial Russian Navy to lead a circumnavigation of the globe. Um, and believe it or not, his mother uh, was born in the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg uh, because her mother and aunts, which would be General Shalley's maternal grand grandmother and great aunts, uh, they served as ladies in waiting to the last uh, at the last Russian court. Um, and his mother's godmother, in fact, was Alex of Hess. And his mother would tell stories about remembering when Rasputin was at court. Um, and so that's, that's, that's quite amazing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, please. Oh, no, I was, was going to say, you know, just, this is one of the things I, I thought fascinating about reading your book is that there is, is so much detective work at play. And it's not a, and what you've written is not a traditional cradle to the grave biography. Uh, you, you're focusing more upon the development of this personality and how, all these uh, influences helped to shape it. What, where did you find this? I mean, did, did, did he have records of all this? Was this something that was commonly known about him? Or did this require any sort of real, uh, you know, spade work in terms of getting at uh, the, this, this, this really remarkable life that has been so overlaid with history? Yeah, that, that, it's an excellent question. And, and I, I got really lucky because his, his father... Uh, once he came to the United States, he started writing his memoirs, and it included a lot of his family history, his wife's family history. Uh, this, this is Shelley's father and, and mother's family histories. Um, and also I got to interview, you know, all the Shelley Cashfield uh, people who are still alive today. So between oral interviews and this really in-depth um, um, uh, memoir, uh, you know, plus doing a little bit of kind of archival research, I was able to piece it together. And and the reason why it's this historical background who, you know, these key relatives are so important, it, it brings me right to like the, the real thing that grabbed my, that lit the fire in my belly to write this book. And, and that's Shelley had a, a very unique reputation. Um, and here's what Colin Powell, um, who um, was Shelley's predecessor, uh, said about him. He said, he's a quiet, decent man and a very hard worker. There is a mistaken notion you have to have patent-esque qualities to be a great general. You don't need to rant and rave or be an arrogant jerk to be successful. Shelley showed that. Um, just drawing from some of the news reports uh, that came out when he was uh, nominated in the fall of 93, um, he was said to be low-key, self-effacing, informal, 
a consensus builder who understands teamwork and is willing to examine options and adjust to political realities, someone extraordinarily sensitive in terms of caring for people, someone whose humility was bone deep, someone who balanced firmness with compassion, a man enormously loved and respected. Now, now that's, a lot, <laughs> that's a lot of praise, and it's not what you typically expect to hear. Um, and so this really grabbed my attention, like, well, first of all, could it be true? <laughs> and second of all, like, well, how did, if it's true, how does somebody like that, how, how are they made? How are they formed? And what really clinched it for me was I read this uh, article in, in retirement. He was asked what his greatest weakness was. And his reply just floored me. I mean, keep in mind that he had a career in the military. He was Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. And then he was chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. And this is what this retired four-star general said was his greatest uh, weakness. And that was he didn't like confrontation. <laughs> and, and so I was hooked. It's like, wow, like, I need to know, was that true? And if so, you know, this personality is supposedly of his. Could it have come in part from his World War II childhood? Could it have come from his aristocratic background? Or perhaps his parents and grandparents and the people around him while, while he was growing up? Um, and so in 2010, I did something that's unthinkable to many people. I uh, quit my full-time job, uh, gave up my health insurance, and I started doing interviews first with General Shalley, his wife, his son, and people who retired in the Seattle area where, where he also retired. And a year later, I put all my belongings in storage and uh, packed up my Honda Element, and I just started out on this open-ended cross-country research tour. Um, uh, interviewing people, uh, let's say all told, I've been to some three dozen cities in three countries. Uh, I've accessed two restricted archives, one uh, in the Seattle area and the other at National Defense University in Washington, D.C. that has all the chairman's papers. Um, and I interviewed well over 300 people uh, from VIPs like President Clinton, uh, Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, Bill Perry, all the way down to perhaps 70 people who knew him as, as privates, uh, including fellow OCS candidates. Um, and, um, and through it all, I've house sat, I've couch served, <laughs> I've even lived out of my car for stretches of, of a time. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how, how, the, the, how I decided to jump in and, and start to try to understand him. And it's interesting how, how you, you know, went about this because you were trying to not just to recount his life, but to truly understand it. How uh, easy was that? I mean, was was it a, a, a? Did you feel like you had a good sense of his personality from the get go, or was it more of a puzzle that you had to crack? And how did you go about uh, solving it? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I mean, that this was the biggest struggle I had. Um, General Shalley was known, and this is a direct quote, uh, for being tight lipped like World War II heroes. Um, I only found one thing that he wrote on his own that I would deem like being open about his, his feelings. And uh, that was after a stroke in 2004, well into retirement. Um, he had to write about his, how the stroke was affecting him. It was part of his rehabilitation. And at the end of that uh, letter, he wrote, further respondeth, saith not which is some arcane legal phrase to protect yourselves from charges of perjury. I mean, a man who is just very careful with what he says. And I liken it to this way, like 
in my neighborhood, we have zoo lights where they string up lights on different objects and you're in, in around Christmas time. And if it's at night and the, the lights are hanging there, you see all these little dots, you know, from the string of lights, but you're not quite sure what it's hanging on. And that's what I felt for the first half of my research, because people only share these tiny little pinpoints of light about what he was like. And I was trying to, to discern what the shape was underneath. Um, and then and the, the big turning point was in 2011, after he passed away, this uh, woman reached out to me on my website. Um, and she, she was a pistol. She said, I, I want you to know that I was John Shalley's first lover in the United States. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is his high school girlfriend. She then was in her mid-70s. And she, she was smart. She was uh, uh, articulate. She uh, was very perceptive. And she, like General Shalley, when he first came to the United States, she was a marginal figure. And I think what happened was when John Shalley arrives in the United States, who's once again, you know, an outsider, not fitting in, uh, he clicked with this person and, and opened up and shared with her uh, things that he hadn't shared with, with anybody else, as far as I can tell. And a lot of her, what she told me kind of really helped me piece together all those points of light, you know, and, and understand the shape of the person uh, underneath. And um, she also told me about some secrets he confided in, in her about things that had happened back in Europe. And that's what then moved the focus of my research from the United States over over to, to Germany and England for a little bit. I'd like to talk about that period in Europe uh, to in terms of getting into the book because it, it's especially relevant to the title of the book. Because it's it's not that you think of you're writing a biography of a general and yet the title of it is The Boy on the Bridge. And I was wondering if you could perhaps maybe explain the title and how it fits with uh, what you describe at the start of the book in terms of that early European experience. Sure. Um, so there's, there's a very poignant evening that happens. Uh, recall his family had fled, um, fled Warsaw after the Warsaw uprising, and they end up in, in Pappenheim, Germany, because his grandmother's sister is the Countess of Pappenheim. Um, so they're kind of coming into this small village, uh, poor relatives of the richest people in, in town. And uh, but the end of the war is approaching. And um, so uh, John Shalley and his family are living with the Pappenheims in there. Every night they would go into the basement of this big castle uh, to be safe in case the Allies bombed. And uh, one night they hear this explosion. Right. And uh, but then no more explosions. So everybody goes out to see what happened. And there was a footbridge in back of the Pappenheim castle that had been uh, detonated by uh, by SS officers who were then preparing to detonate the big bridge that was right nearby. And uh, of course the Pappenheimers saw what they were doing and said, no, you can't do this. It's, this is our cultural heritage. And so there's a compromise where all able-bodied Pappenheimers have to come out and start disassembling this bridge by hand. You know, so this is, this kind of marks the low point in his life because he's a stateless refugee living off the uh, charity of relatives. Uh, that night his father's not there because his father ended up then joining for the German military to fight for them in the hopes of defeating Russia in order to uh, liberate uh, Georgia again. Uh, so his father's not there. His mother's not there because the father had since gone missing and she would occasionally strike out on these trips to for, for find news of, of, of his whereabouts. And, you know, so he's all alone. He doesn't speak much German. 
and he's working alongside uh, villagers trying to dismantle this bridge, uh, never knowing if you know they're going to be bombed. Well, it starts to get daylight. Bridge still isn't disassembled, and he happens to look up, look across the river, and he sees the lead scouts of the 86th U.S. Infantry Division. And like this is the poignant part. Like this is the very first time that John Shalikashvili lays eyes on Americans, <laughs> and they happen to be military. And you know, well, then you fast forward five decades later, and it's the high point of his life. He's at his retirement ceremony. You know, he's at Fort uh, Myer, Summerall Parade Field, and he's looking at the Joint uh, Staff Honor Guard with Bill Clinton and Bill Cohen by his side because he's retiring as the 13th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So, uh, so the Boy on Bridge is important because, A, it marks the low point in his life. Um, B, it captures a lot of, you know, just the mystique of, of who he was because we have had no other senior military figure or political figure that I know of who's perhaps had such a dramatic life story. Um and there's, a, there's another, uh, the, the, the bridge metaphor comes in in yet another place, but that's one of the big reveals of the book. Uh, so perhaps it's <laughs> best not to mention it here. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off uh, so how does he go from being a stateless refugee in germany to a uh, teenager in the united states enrolled in a high school in illinois yeah so his um father had a, a cousin who ended up in new york city uh, where he would hang around with um, the, Matt Machiavelli, the guy who, the Georgian who created that brand of perfume. Um, and while his father's cousin was there, met this uh, woman who actually came from Peoria, but she was too, Peoria is kind of a pr provincial place, especially compared to New York. And she could not stand Peoria, so she had moved to New York. They met, fell in love. Um, and um, they, they ended up getting divorced, but she promised him she would take care of his family. Then she heard about uh, Shali Kashvili's difficulty in Pappenheim, and so she helped bring them over. Uh, and so you think about it, right? So they here's the great American story. Because of their uh, the largesse of this family from Peoria, they come to the United States on the SS America. It's this beautiful red, white, and blue ocean liner, right? They come in November of 1954, so it's Thanksgiving. He has his first Thanksgiving meal on board. <laughs> They land in New York City, spends a few weeks there, right? You know, and then boom, they're shuttled off to Peoria, Illinois, which is the heartland of the country. Um, I mean, you can't get more of a you know prototypical American immigrant story than that. Um, How was he received by 
uh, his 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 peers? How is he received by the community? Because I, I I'm thinking about how on one level that must have been so uh, disconcerting for him. It must have been so so uh, you know to to be in, in a very different place among a very different people. Uh, you know, speak who were you know conversant in a very different language, language that you know while he becomes fluent and he never you know masters. He has that funny accent. You know, right <laughs> up to the, you know right up you know <laughs> through his time as chairman. Sure. Um, well, I spoke to uh, the family that had brought him over, and they told me a few anecdotes, right? When Shally's uh, uh, older brother was sent first in order to be there for his first year of college. When he arrived, he had a regimental swagger stick and white gloves on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this is, you know, this is the heartland of America. Um, and then when John and his sister and, and mother and father arrived, you know, they show up at the house they're, the uh, parents want to introduce the children to the Luthies, so they the kids come in, they click their heels, they bow to them, and then they leave the room, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's huge cultural things to, to overcome, but, I mean, remember all those wonderful things I quoted from the newspaper reports around the time of his nomination, how he was, you know, just this wonderful person. Well, you begin to see why he would develop into that because kind of person because he was always an outsider he was born in poland but his parents weren't polish <laughs> his parents spoke russian at home to each other um then he moves to germany and he doesn't speak german he has to, to learn it and then he comes to the united states you know and it's very hard when someone asks them where are you from who are you right his father was was um a huge georgian patriot so the kids were told that they were georgian but his parents spoke Russian at home. And, you know, it's so in this mix of who am I, I, I think, especially for John, because of his, he had a wonderful personality to start with. He just became very adept at making people feel comfortable, not talking about himself, you know, bringing other people to the forefront. Um, you might not get along with someone, you might not like them, but when you're an outsider, you don't have that luxury, right? So you can kind of begin to see, He's 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 already picked up a lot of diplomatic skills through all these moves. And, um, you know, his girlfriend at the time, she has some really <laughs> very wry anecdotes about, you know, how she watched his behavior. Um, well, the diplomacy is there. But what fascinated me when I was reading about his time in high school was how he stood up to Donna's mother. Because I was thinking that I mean, it, it, you think about you know you're you're, you're a teenager uh, at that time. You're really trying hard to in, in, impress uh, your 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 uh, girlfriend's parents, and and as you explain, you know Donna's mother was a very difficult person, and it would have been you know so easy in so many ways for for him to. I was as I was reading, I was thinking it would be so easy for him to just kind of you know to kind of keep his distance and to you know not engage with her, and yet he does something that that is really you know rather brave under the circumstances, and and the kind of thing that is you know rather bold, especially given the fact that he's not an American, he is coming from a, a very different background, one that as you were pointing out, kind of instills if anything greater respect for one's elders than than you would see in the United States even in the nineteen fifties. So I think this is where being. <sighs> I think this is where being a war refugee comes into it because, you know, he's seen how marginal people get put upon, right? He's seen kind of a lot of horrors in this world. And I think at the bottom line, he, he just like he did with the Kurds, right? Like there are times when, and this is part of um, noblesse oblige that aristocrats uh, have, right? When you, if you're given a lot, then you have a responsibility to help out. 
So I think he had gotten that kind of socialization from from his parents and his upbringing, but also just being a refugee, like they had care packages. They were some of the first families to ever receive a care package or the Luthies, the Peorians who helped move them out. So he, he could see it from two angles, how you're supposed to step up and do the right thing for people who don't aren't as fortunate as you. And I think what he was trying to do with Donna, Donna's uh, mother was to stand up for Donna because he saw the, the unfairness. You know, he could be in so, social circumstances. He, he knew how to, you know, not take umbrage at small things. But I think when when things got really serious, he would speak up and say and do the right thing. Um, that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And, and it's. Is something that you know, I think comes in and uh, again when you're talking about his time in in OCS. I was thinking I was reading that section about how there are so many opportunities to abuse one's position, uh, abuse one's authority, and yet he seems to be very dedicated to you know doing what's right, not just in terms of his own character, but doing right by the people who he had some degree of power over. Yes, and. I think he developed it so strongly over the course of his career for the following reason. Um, one way to look at his life, both in Europe and then in his early stages in the United States, was he was betrayed by a lot of people he loved. Um, and I use the word betray broadly. Uh, there's things that come out in the end of the book about his father, what his father had done back in, in during World War II. Um, Donna ends up leaving him and doesn't tell him why. Uh, that's revealed at the end of the book, but so that's another huge blow. Um, and years later, he tracks her down and offers to marry her, and, and she can't for this crazy reason, but she still loves him. Uh, and he's just alone. He finally finds this beautiful woman. She's an East German living in Texas. They get married. They have a, a kid, and his wife gets stomach cancer, uh, dies, and the baby dies very shortly after, or vice versa. Um, and I think he was left, he, he was hit by so many betrayals from loved ones. And he, he, for so long, he never felt like he belonged, whether it was in Poland or in Germany or, or in Peoria, that he finally decided the military is going to be my family because it's always going to exist. And as long as I, you know, take care of them, they'll take care of me. And so I think at this early stage, he was only a captain living in Germany when this happened. Uh, he really makes this fundamental shift in, in like how he's what he's going to devote his energies to. So it's not about him. It's not about his career. You know, it's really is I'm going to take care of those that 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 I work with, that I'm either entrusted with or if I'm part of a larger unit, I'm going to show that same care going up as I, I try to show going down. Um, and, and that's something else that stood out for me is the very circuitous route he took to committing to a military career. How does he go from being a teenager in Peoria to that point where he decides this is indeed what he's going to do with uh, the rest of his professional life? Um, yeah, so he didn't um, at that time, if you if you actively volunteered, um, this was right before the draft was instituted, if you actively volunteered, you'd get a better placement, you know, after college. And he said, no, he, he didn't want to do it. I think in part, he was afraid to compete with his older brother, who had already uh, joined the military and was starting a, a very good career. Um, but then he gets drafted. And so he goes off. And he decides he's going to try to become an officer via officer candidate school. But that didn't mean he wanted a career in the military. I, I think 
his his motivation was, well, if I'm here in the military and my brother's in it, my brother became an officer, even if I'm not going to stay, I better darn well do the same thing. <laughs> so he graduates from OCS in the top three of his class, which meant he could have then gone, been given a regular army commission, but he turned it down. Um, and But he got lucky. His first assignment is in Alaska. You know, he's he's on one of the last ski patrols, if you can think about that, you know, and think about being a, a, a young man out and you're testing yourself against the elements and, you know, you're taking your platoon out into the, the, the snowy mountains. Uh, and he absolutely fell in love because it was a small community and everybody got along with each other very well. And he was getting noticed by by the general and made the general's aide and um, and yeah, and he decided, wow, this is what the military life is that I want in. <laughs> but then he was assigned to Texas next and he hated it. And that's when he was thinking about leaving and meets his wife, uh, the woman he'd marry. But then she dies. And, and that's it's after she dies where he decides, yes, the military. What is he going to do? Leave the military then and then go back to civilian life? He would be so lost. You know, the military was the one thing that he could hold on to. Um, and there's, you know, there's this great scene in the book I describe right while his baby and wife are, are dying or right after they died, his boss tasked him with this, um, with this assignment to decorate the, the unit headquarters. And Shelley just goes maniacal. He like does this in-depth historical research, finds pictures and, and any, anything he can find related to the, how this unit developed. And he had them framed and hung them on the wall and, um, my reading of it is for him, this is what families do because back in Pappenheim, when they were living in the castle of the Pappenheims, I've been there, I've met the current, uh, Countess Pappenheim and walked down the halls. There's, you know, these stately oil, oil paintings of all Pappenheim ancestors going up the spiral staircases and down the long corridors. And I think for him, that was his, his sign that, yeah. I am devoting myself to the military family and see here, here they are on the walls. Uh, and that's when it became clear that he'd probably stay in the military for the rest of his life. He has a very successful career in the military. And yet in reading it, I was struck by, uh, in one sense, how there was a degree of untraditional uh, elements to it. And yet at the same time, you, as you constantly point out, you know, he, he is, he's always, you know, he, he's always, I don't want to quite say beating the odds, but it's he's he's demonstrated just how he's excelling. How you know how many how many uh, majors become lieutenant colonels and the percentage of lieutenant colonels who become colonels, and he's he's always you know at that cusp, and and yet he he doesn't do it. Uh, he as you point out when 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 he goes to Vietnam, he has to defer the service because of, of the death of his first wife. And then uh, when he goes, he's not in a, in a combat position. He he's he's part of Mac V. He's, he's he's serving in the in the assistance command. He's he's not necessarily, uh, you know, distinguishing himself by leading a a, a unit, uh, you know, in in country or anything like that. Sure, sure, um, yeah. He, but it, so he didn't have as much kind of combat experience there. But he it was actually a diplomatic role because he's. He, he was paired with the, the local mayor and a local military head, and they had to work with uh, Filipinos and um, Australians and uh, even the CIA. So there was this big kind of, you know, working with others component. And, and, and that brings me to, if you ask me what General Shally's brilliance was, and that's 
was that he was able to work with diverse groups of people, very diverse groups of people, and to somehow come up with a, a you know very um, uh, a productive consensus. And, and that's a hard thing to do. And you know, um, he, he showed it time after time. Go back to the list of his big accomplishments that I, I stated at the outset. I mean, those are all working with people. During Operation Provide Comfort, there were militaries from 13 countries. I think in total there was close to 21,000 of them, and there were um, over 50, 55 NGOs that also were on the ground. And these were people that hadn't worked together. You know, I, I spoke to the the woman who was sent by the UN, and she said, "When I landed, I thought I was in Mars. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what these what these uniform ranks meant, what uniforms meant." You know, and then I spoke to uh, General Jim Jamerson, who uh, was Shali's deputy, and he said, yeah, when he first heard of DART, uh, the Turkish, the U.S. ambassador to Turkey mentioned DART, the Disaster Assistance Relief Team. It's part of the State Department. He said, my mind first jumped to the game of DARTs. I, I knew it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't that, but I mean, so yeah, you had a whole bunch of people thrown in together, never worked together, and oftentimes had outright distrust for each other. Um and usually when militaries of different countries come together, it's all thought out in advance. Like, here's here's the way it's going to work. Here's who's going to report to who. Here's how decisions are going to be made. This was just a crisis that appeared out of nowhere. So people were thrown together. And it was because of Shali's personality of being low key, of, you know, entrusting others with their jobs, uh, you know, not being a micromanager with, um, you know, so he was able to deal, deal with a, a, a lot of conflicting demands from a lot of people and make it work. Um. So he, he has this great success with uh, Operation Provide Comfort. And and, and you talk uh, about that, uh, about that operation and, and his role in it and, and how he just really impresses people. And so he's nominated for uh, the, the, the chairmanship in the summer of 1993. And this ends up, uh, for the first time, he's, he's this—he's this national figure. He gets all this attention, and as you explain, some things come out which which potentially jeopardize what becomes ultimately a very successful chairmanship. What what uh, was what was revealed or what was uh, touted about him that ends up uh, creating some problems for him? Uh, well, in part, uh, when Clinton nominated uh, Shally, he said something to the effect of his family fled. Poland to Germany ahead of the Russian advance or something like that. And, you know, a lot of people were like, wait a minute, why is a Pole <laughs> fleeing to Germany? Something, something's not right here. We're not being told the whole story. Um, and so this uh, sent some people on a mission, right, to find out what, what was going on. And lo and behold, they found uh, Shelley's father's memoirs that I was telling you about there at Stanford uh, at the Hoover Institute. Uh, and they began pouring through them. And there are, the, the memoirs are long and they're rambling and they jump around from historical time period to time period. His father wrote them in Russian and uh, his mother and a paid translator, you know, um, uh, translated them over time. And but they're, you know, <laughs> it was not a professional job. And probably I'm the only one on the planet who's gone through them. Painstakingly, I've spent months to try to sort everything out. Um, and anyway, in that, then they found out that the father had not only served for the German military, but at one point was part of a unit that was under the SS. Um, and so 
according to you know to to the rules to law, Shally's family should never have been allowed in the United States. And so that just became a big, oh my God, the potential chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, his father was a Nazi. You know, that's that was what was the the, the accusations in the paper. Um, and then it, it kind of boiled down to what did Shally know about it and. This is where some of the interesting things uh, start to happen. And this is where I try to tie in all the different strands of the book. Uh, the book jumps around an awful lot because I'm, I'm trying to show you the key events and uh, people that help shape him. And sometimes you're kind of wondering, you're just getting into it. Then you're taken to a different country at a different time period. But it's when you get to this, con this confirmation hearing where all the little pieces start to fall into place. And you kind of understand how everything comes together to shape not only who he was, but how he deals with the revelation that comes out during his confirmation about his father's uh, service with the SS. And, and, it, and you ultimately came out that he didn't really know about it. And it, it ends up as, uh, I, you know, it's hardly a spoiler, but it ends up not becoming an obstacle to his, to his uh, confirmation. But he, it, it doesn't become an obstacle in part, but not in large part, but he lied. He did know. Uh, and it, it, the, the book hinges around, well, why is he lying? For, for a man who built his career, uh, Clinton stresses it during the nomination, right? Shelley was just known for always telling the truth, even, even if it hurts. Like, people trusted him because they knew he was honest. He didn't posture, you know. Um, and so the big question is, well, why did he lie? And that's where I, I, I weep in together all these different stories about the people who shaped him and were important to him and, well, we've taken up some a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, now it's just on <laughs> trying to promote the book, um, uh, or having yeah, uh, having uh, you know different. I'm um, giving talks, uh, doing podcasts, um, and and the like. Well, I hope that when you're done with that, you find a project that is uh, just as worthy as this one and produces just as good of a book. Oh, thank you, but my wife, my wife might like me to get a paying job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Andrew, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate it. Take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.